0: Listening to the Sand Magazine's Belabored podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen.
1: Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored, episode one hundred and thirty-four. We are talking about Trump's latest assaults on immigrant rights, the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey in Texas, and the meaning of mutual aid in a time like this. First, the news. It seems like the Trump administration has been working overtime to make our jobs worse in recent weeks. The White House just did a twofer for us to make work both longer and get paid less. First, they rescinded a major reform to overtime rules under Obama, and they also suspended a planned initiative to guard against workplace discrimination through data collection. First, the Justice Department officially dropped its defense of Obama's landmark overtime rule, which would have added a major boost to the paychecks of millions of workers by increasing the number of low-level managerial workers eligible for time-and-a-half pay when they work longer hours, and it would also strengthen existing regulations for workers who already qualify for overtime. The business lobby predictably sued to block the rule uh, during the Obama administration claiming that it unfairly and negatively impacted their profits. And once Obama was out of office, the Trump administration predictably moved quickly to dismantle the rule by simply letting it die in court. According to the National Employment Law Project, the existing overtime rule, which hasn't been updated since 2004, permitted employers to exempt from overtime employees uh, like retail and fast food managers who are earning as little as $23,660 annually. So this blurring of the lines between who's a worker and who's a low-level manager um, is having a devastating impact. The ending of that rule is basically an obvious pander to the large employers uh, who are seeking to slash wages. And with a Republican-dominated Congress, these regressive legal and executive actions will uh, obviously uh, kill the few moderate forms that were started but unfortunately never completed under Obama.
2: This week was American Labor Day, not to be confused with International Workers Day, May 1st, but this year's Labor Day was in fact international as well. That is because in addition to the massive strike and day of action for the American Fight for 15 on Monday, British McDonald's workers went on strike on Monday as well, and that was the first strike of McDonald's workers in the UK. To talk about the strike, we have Ian Hodson, National President of Baker's Food and Allied Workers Union, which has been organizing with the fast food workers. Our listeners over here are pretty familiar with the fight for 15 in the us and i imagine many of the issues are similar but tell us a little bit about how the campaign got started um in the uk well,
3: well the first thing i'd like to say is obviously offer so- solidarity to the sisters and brothers of the uh, fight for 15. um we've been working very closely uh, with fight for 15 our, our campaign is linked to the 5 to 15 in the United States. We started our campaign around about 2014, uh, with the aims of the campaign to abolish what's known as a zero hours contract, uh, the end of a youth minimum wage, and the introduction of a minimum wage of at least £10 an hour.
2: Let's go through a couple of those things. So um, first off, tell me, uh, what is the youth minimum wage? How does that work?
3: Well, well, basically, depending on your age, depends on how much they pay you. So like a 16 to 18-year-old, for example, will get about £4.50 an hour. Uh, An 18 to a 21-year-old will get £5.45 an hour. Uh, Anyone over the age of 22 to 25 will get £6.50 an hour. And then over 25 will get £7.50 an hour. That sounds
2: complicated.
3: Well, it does. But what it, what it means is it means that obviously they use a lot of young people uh, so they can avoid paying uh, the higher rates. Uh, there's not a problem with, with them using lots of young people. You know, we haven't got a problem with that. But if they're doing it for the reasons of just avoiding, you know, the the cost of a, of a worker, then, then, then that's wrong.
2: Yeah, for sure. So for people also who aren't familiar with zero hours contracts, can you explain what those are? There's been a, a pretty long fight over this these for, for a while right
3: yeah well, i mean basically a zero hours contract means that you're guaranteed absolutely nothing whatsoever you've got no guarantee of any hours in many cases it means that your employment rights are denied to you because obviously you can't raise a, a grievance or uh, you're concerned about how you're being treated treated in the workplace yeah because that's led to, to people not receiving hours for example somebody in a zero hours contract may be told they got say 40 hours next week week after they might get none there's no commitment and no guarantee of any type of hours at all which of course makes it very difficult for, to have a decent life yeah because obviously uh, if you've got no way of planning the um you, your week ahead right. and you've got no guarantee of an income because if you don't work you don't get no pay then then it becomes very very difficult for someone on a zero hours contract also a person on a zero hours contract they can't get credit uh, they couldn't get a loan they couldn't buy a car on a on a loan agreement you know it has a massive impact on the local economy
2: and so you said the campaign's been going on since 2014 but this was the first strike yeah. right
3: this this was the first strike what's happened is obviously we've had a number of demonstrations uh, across the UK. Uh, we've been working, like I say, internationally. Uh, obviously with the with the uh, uh, five to fifteen, and we've been working with our with our colleagues over in New Zealand as well, around Europe and around other parts of the world. This campaign is is also taking a hold. So they've mainly been demonstrations outside uh, McDonald's shops. And so yeah, talk about the
2: building up to actually going on strike were there particular issues that that brought the workers to the point of actually you know walking off the job this time?
3: yeah I mean these, these two particular shops they have a number of issues ranging from the issue of grievances related to sexual discrimination, yeah. uh, bullying and harassment, health and safety issues, people getting burnt in the workplace, and obviously the fact that you know that McDonald's had said, that they would give them uh, guaranteed hours and failed to actually deliver them. Some people were punished for joining the trade union, so had their hours cut. So there was quite a number of things which which the company had a duty to resolve, but failed to resolve. So um, obviously we have to comply with British employment law over here. So that has meant that basically we we have to have what's called a a genuine industrial uh, reason for, for having a strike. And, and that's why that's why our strike was based on th- those issues rather than around the issue of £10 and the, the abolition of zero hours. Those were additional issues, obviously, our members organising around.
2: Right, and obviously it went off on the same day as workers were on strike over in the US. So
3: It, it did indeed, yeah. I mean, um, that was great timing, obviously. I think what it did was send a, a clear message to McDonald's about how uh, we recognise they're a global organisation that operates around the world with some of the worst employment practices, and we recognise now the best way to deal with a with a, a bad global employer is is to respond on a on a, a global industrial basis.
2: Over here, the workers in the, the fight for fifteen are not actually members of SEIU or or the union um, because they have to win those shop by shop. So. But I understand some of the, work, the workers who went on strike are actually members of your union. Can you tell us about how that's different?
3: Well, over, over here, uh, you, you have to be a member of a union to go on strike because we can only ballot members. So, so we couldn't ballot non-members, for example. So non-members wouldn't be able to organize a strike. Um, so so they have to be in a trade union. And obviously, they, these have joined the, the trade union. Uh, whereas, I mean, obviously, for us, We have the right of representing uh, in a shot whether we've got recognition there or not.
2: And so finally, you got a lot of support and have throughout this campaign from from Jeremy Corbyn and from the Labour Party. Um, Are they making this demand part of their sort of, you know, their base platform going forward? Is this a, a key factor in some of the support that they've gained?
3: Jeremy Corbyn and John MacDonald have been absolutely fantastic, as has the Labour Party. I mean, the different members of uh, the, the Labour Party, uh, their MPs across the country have sent us messages of support. Many of them have, have obviously have, uh, turned up at the rally that we held in London, turned up at our picket lines on, on, on Monday. The support we've had is, has been absolutely uh, fantastic. And in fact, John MacDonald has wrote uh, to the company, uh, telling the company to meet us. And, you know, they, part of their, their, uh, their aim is that, you know, once we get a, um, a Jeremy Corbyn government, which we hope will be pretty soon, they have to recognize the trade union.
2: All right, and so what's next for the campaign?
3: I mean, obviously we've tried to engage with McDonald's. Um, we want McDonald's to be a good employer. If, if McDonald's, you know, continues their culture of bullies, bullying uh, workers, if it continues to victimize and demonize uh, trade union members, Mm-hmm. If it continues, you know, with its low low pay model, if it continues with its uh, zero hour contract model, then then it will be faced with more disputes. I mean, we're we're now recruiting right across the country since the strike. We've been inundated with people wanting to join the trade union and wanting to organise strikes in their workplace too.
2: That was Ian Hodson of the Bakers, Food and Allied Workers Union in the UK.
1: The Guardian has reported on a new plot to dismantle public sector unions by going state-by-state, promoting right-to-work-type legislation and other policies aimed at undermining organized labor, particularly among civil servants. A leaked memo from a coalition of right-wing think tanks called the State Policy Network details the plans for an $80 million effort to push anti-union legislation nationwide, enhancing a long-standing effort to pass on the state-level deeply regressive union-busting legislation. According to The Guardian, the new campaign specifically takes aim at public sector unions, uh, one of the only sectors left in the economy with relatively strong unionization rates due to relatively friendly state laws. By attacking the public sector, uh, namely by portraying public service workers as anti-business and ideologically anti-freedom, this coalition aims to erode organizing in both the public and private sector workplaces across the country. And their manifesto reads... Tellingly, quote, big government unions are the biggest sources of funding and political muscle for the left, and a major obstacle to the ability of voters to reclaim control of American government. Right, taking America back again. Despite the stealthy upsurge for hardline conservative think tanks under Trump, though, there has been some counter-protest from an unlikely source north of the border. Canadian labor um, has managed to convince Canadian trade ministers to proffer some pro-worker legislation in the latest round of negotiations on NAFTA, according to inside sources. Um, They have a proposal on the table to bar U.S. states from passing right-to-work legislation. This is supposedly an effort by the Trudeau administration's trade ministers to ensure that Canadian wages and labor conditions are not further undercut by lower U.S. standards. Unions in both the U.S. and Canada have welcomed the initiative, though it has yet to be seen how serious Canada is on really pressing Trump on the issue. After all, they did strike very similar and very disappointing trade deals uh, just recently. I talked to Scott Sinclair of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and he explained that while the seemingly pro-worker initiative is a positive signal Canada's own track record on pushing neoliberal trade deals with Europe suggests that it's not necessarily going to walk the talk.
4: Uh, Canadian workers and in fact American workers like lots of uh, lots of firms have uh, relocated to to right to work states and and these anti-unionization laws depress wages and working conditions for workers in both Canada and the United States. So so restricting them Would definitely uh, benefit workers. Uh, The question is, you know, what are the chances of the Trump administration actually agreeing to that? Uh, Would that kind of a restriction on states' rights be approved by a Republican-controlled Congress, if that's the case when, uh, you know, NAFTA 2.0 comes for congressional approval? And uh, you know, and there are some issues of whether uh, the federal government can bind provinces to this sort of a provision. But but overall, you know, I, I think it's I think it's an encouraging uh, start on labor rights, and I hope they're serious.
1: How would the Canadian proposals that have been put forward so far in the NAFTA negotiations compare with some of the actual deals that Canada has struck?
4: They would not match up to the rhetoric. No, I mean uh, the labor and sustainable development uh, and environment chapters of the Canada-European deal, the CETA as they call it, are are almost completely unenforceable, in sharp contrast to you know the investment protection uh, provisions or the intellectual property provisions uh, and, and so on and so forth, which are you know hard obligations. These other, you know, sustainable development and labor are are very, very soft, soft law obligations. So they're, they're uh, hortatory and they're exhorting people to observe labor standards and so on, but not, not requiring them to do so. And uh, there's really no, there's no enforceability and, you know, you can bring a complaint, but very little happens. (laughs) So, so that's, it's really important to uh, insist that labor standards in NAFTA don't go down that track and to challenge you know the rhetoric of you know our trade minister for example that CETA is the most uh, progressive agreement for um, labor and environment ever which is which is totally you know it's pretty hollow pretty hollow claim.
1: And that was Scott Sinclair of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. President Trump dealt a massive blow to immigrant youth, students and workers across the country with his announcement this week that he would repeal the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, otherwise known as DACA program, which granted a temporary legal reprieve five years ago under the Obama administration we talk to immigrant rights activists and labor advocates across the country. First to Texas, where the crush of Trump's anti-immigrant policies is shading into the struggles of educators who are braving Trumpism on two fronts. First, they're struggling to defend the immigrant youth in their communities and uh, seeking to protect their labor rights, and they're also mobilizing to provide mutual aid in the wake of the storm. Nancy Vera, president of the Corpus Christi AFT, talked about the struggle that the community faces in recovering from the storm first and foremost, as well as the struggles of local immigrant students and their families to protect each other as they face hostile policies of the Trump administration.
0: I've been in close contact with the superintendent and and, uh, my colleagues who are very concerned because we were supposed to start school today. This was going to be the student's first day. However, conditions in the schools vary from one school to the next. One school, for example, uh, Carroll High School, uh, had a uh, roof damage, and so they're in no condition in the band hall. They're in no condition to go back to back to school at that at this point. So the superintendent is uh, evaluating and assessing what the needs are of the schools. Now, staff goes back Wednesday, uh, the day after tomorrow, and. Um, we anticipate that uh, that the students are some students are going to be traumatized. Do you feel like the school, even
1: prior to the storm, um, that that it had adequate resources like guidance counselors or um, school psychiatrists or nurses on hand to deal with the the general health care, mental health needs of the students?
0: Unfortunately, education funding in in the state of Texas is far from adequate. Uh, the, some of our schools are in dire need of social workers, of more psychiatrists, of more psychologists, of more counselors. And unfortunately, uh, because the state of Texas doesn't prioritize uh, education, in my opinion, even if we're getting less funding than we were getting five or ten years ago, it is difficult to say that we have adequate resources and person power to be able to service all the children. But I do know that the professionals who are there are going to do everything they can to try and, and help the ch- children through these, this trauma. I think it's it's times like these when we really have to take pause when we talk about the overall picture of education and public education in, in, in Texas and in the United States, that, um, that the, our schools do a tremendous job with the limited resources that we have and that they need to take a step back, the legislature the lieutenant governor, and say, enough, uh, let's fund our public schools adequately. And as a Latina uh, in, in South Texas, it is disheartening to me that, uh, that when we have such a huge number of minorities in our schools now, that the state of Texas is not doing an adequate job of funding our, ch- our, our education. In other words, they're not funding our children and meeting the, their needs as adequately as we should.
1: It's a huge, obviously, immigrant population there. Um, what special barriers are they facing? Is it the language? Is it um, undocumented families and 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 folks like that with a precarious immigration status who are going to be facing extra hardship during the recovery?
0: Uh, absolutely. And and the fact of the matter is, we as, edu- as educators aren't supposed to uh, treat anyone differently, any child differently, uh, because they're an immigrant or because of their of their social status or whatever, right? So, however. The children who have, who are here, and their parents who are undocumented, are in most fear, and they're the silent. They're going to be silent throughout this because they're afraid that they're going to be deported because of the threat by the president and and our our governor uh, and the attitude that they have toward um, undocumented uh, children and immigrants. Uh, I think that it is a travesty, a sin, and shameful that as human beings we're not taking care of the, our children whether whether they be undocumented or not uh to be able to help them feel safe in our in our in our uh, communities many of us uh have uh, our parents were were immigrants and um frankly um, we're very proud that in Corpus Christi especially that immigrants uh, help build this community we built, help build our churches. Uh, we help build our streets. And, uh, and uh, so, yes, I'm very concerned that the children who are undocumented are going to be in the shadows and not be, be given the services that they, they need.
1: And that was Nancy Vera of the Corpus Christi AFT. And in Austin, AFT leader Montserrat Garibay was protesting to defend DACA in the wake of the storm, as well as mobilizing with her community against SB4, Texas's new legislation threatening to outlaw so-called sanctuary cities, which offer special protections for local undocumented residents. I know that you guys have been protesting about DACA recipients. Um, It seems like SB4 is also... Going to affect you know the same set of students and the same set of families that you're serving in your communities. Uh, how are teachers? How are staff dealing with that?
5: It's been yeah, I mean it's been nonstop. And school here in Austin started two weeks ago, and there's just a lot of concerns. With as before, starting on Friday, teachers that have their DACA permit, we have a, about a dozen of them here in Austin. And, you know, just I try to talk to them every other day, and they're just feeling very stressed. Uh, I'm worried about what's going to happen with the status of DACA. And then on top of that, we have the hurricane. And then yesterday, we had uh, the president here in Austin. So, yeah, it's been overwhelming. But... Um, I mean, we understand like uh, as educators as, and as a union, we have to remain strong uh, and just try to do the best that we can to uh, be a support system for our documented teachers, um, but for our community as well. So we've started um, like an assistance program for people uh, people that probably lost their home. Like here in Austin, we have a lot of members, teachers, custodians, uh, bus drivers that live like close to Austin, like on Bastrop, for example. And Bastrop was hit hard by also by the by the rain. So we're trying to figure out like how to best assist them and help them because they're driving every day here to school when, you know, they lost their home. So it's been, it's been, it's hard to juggle that. Um, and, uh, you know, Having the president here is just kind of like a slap in the face for everyone um, because his comments are just totally inappropriate.
1: Um, What about students who are DACA? And I guess about SB4, how is that going to affect both the recovery effort as well as, um, you know, the resumption of school for you guys? (laughs) Yeah, so um,
5: we're still doing Know Your Rights trainings. I'm actually driving today to San Antonio with a group of teachers um, to let them, to share like the stuff that we have been doing in our union. Uh, We're going to be sharing like the Know Your Rights trainings that they can provide to the community like we have been doing, Uh, the emergency packages that they can share with the students and the families to to get prepared for SB4 on, on Friday. Um, and right now, like, I think that's the, the, you know, it's hard when you talk to families. Um, I taught pre-K for a year, so I, ha- I'm in contact with a lot of the families that I taught and, you know, they message me saying, you know, we just want I just, you know, want to leave Austin or Texas and go to a sanctuary city. And what I tell them, like at the end of the day, you're like, it's your call. But do know, like, at least here in Austin, we have, like, a support system. We're doing the Know Your Rights trainings. You know where the pro-immigration lawyers, pro-bono immigration lawyers are at. Um, We're working really well with the Mexican consulate. So we have a a strong support system, at least here in Austin. And what I tell them, if you leave to Missouri or Idaho or another um, state, it's not, like, you're not going to have that support system, right? Uh, And as hard as it is, I think people just need to really understand what, what can they show a police officer if they're stopped by the police officer and ask, you know, if they ask them for their papers. Um, so it's just really letting them know the very basics of what are their rights, giving them their, the card that says, I'm, uh, I'm not gonna answer any questions. I am uh, using my Fifth Amendment right and just really going through that training with them, it's its what we're doing right now because um, we have students that, yeah, they're worried. However, like life is still happening. They still have to go to school um, and we just have to keep organizing the best that we can. The packages that we have um, have the emergency plan uh, that they need to fill out with their family uh, on just like even very basic things of, do you have an extra pair of keys in case you get detained? Um, can your spouse come get, you know, go get the, the car so they can take the children to school? So one of the things that in the emergency plan is like have an extra set of keys uh, for your car, have information about like uh, the debit card, uh, information about your banking case your husband or wife gets detained. You make sure that you know the, like that information, because you're going to need money. Um, having two two people, like, especially in the elementary school and middle school, uh, having two people that can take care of the kids in case you're detained. Um, because a lot of the question is like, I don't want my child to go to foster care. Uh, you know, and people are just really worried, like, I don't want anybody to take my children if I'm detained or my husband is detained. So it's really identifying, like, those people letting the district know that, you know, two caregivers can pick up the child if they're detained or, or sent back to Mexico. So it's just having a, a detailed plan of what they need to do from an elementary child, a school child to a high school student. If somebody knocks on the door, what is it that you need to do? If we're so we're driving to school and we get stopped. Um, and the police officer asked me for my papers, like, what are some of the things that they need to do? So we're, we're like literally having different scenarios when we do the presentation with the families and say, these are scenarios now. We're providing you helpful resources and information that's going to be helpful for you. In case this happens, this is the way that you can defend yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. And what about schools themselves? Are you basically setting it up so that in your facilities can you prevent, say, ICE from walking in or anything like that, or police from walking in and just checking people's papers?
5: Right. So we passed, but after uh, the raids that happened here in Austin in fe- at the end of February, we were able to pass a uh, uh, safe schools resolution within Austin ISD. And We, you know, the nine school board members said that uh, that the schools were uh, zones for learning and that I, like, the only way that I could go to a school is if they have a warrant for a specific person, right? And they can't just go to to the teacher. They would have to go to the administrator in the school because there is this thing called FERPA. which does not allow a teacher to provide personal and confidential information about the student. So it's pretty much like uh, CPS. When CPS wants to pick up a child, they have to go through a channel, uh, a process, right? They have to go to the principal. The principal needs to locate the child and then they go through that process. Well, it's the same process we we have been told uh, in the district as well. Um, Yeah, and we're still, you know, Uh, making sure, like, how, like, more detail on how this is happening. As far as we know, we haven't had cases where the the ICE has gone to a school because part of the sensitive schools, the Homeland Security in 2011, uh, passed the sensitive schools that ICE was not supposed to go to churches, funerals, hospitals, uh, rallies, demonstrations. So it's still, as far as we know, that's still good. Um, And that's important. However, we know, like we've seen here in Austin, actually, uh, where their ICE cars are not in the school property, but they're maybe like a block away. Right. So that creates a lot of fear within the community, because if you see an ICE band and people that are from ICE then people are going to think like, okay, what are they doing here? So that's when we're, that's why we're having these know your rights training. So people know, don't run, like just walk away the other direction, uh, try to keep calm. Uh, if they stop you, you know, you have, you, you don't have to answer their questions. You can just pull out your card and give it to them. Um, so those are like the, the things that we're doing, but I'm happy to um, share with you what they, the district put out um, for the teachers.
1: So you you would go so far as to call your school a sanctuary school?
5: The district doesn't really call it a sanctuary school. They're calling it more like safe, safe zones of learning.
1: That's one of the big
5: things here in Texas, right? Um, the moment that Governor Abbott came out and said that if you were a sanctuary something, that you were going to be like resources were not going to be given to you. So the district was really hesitant, right, of doing this resolution and calling it, excuse me, a sanctuary. So we were like, okay, fine, it's a safe zone for learning, kids are welcome. Uh, but essentially it's the same, right? Like police officer, ICE is not allowed to come to the, the school because of that Homeland Security
1: memo. And there was Montserrat Garabay, an educator and union leader in Austin, Texas. And here in New York City, documented youth and their allies were out in force in front of Trump Tower, marching for their rights. Here are the voices of Jose Luis Santiago of Homestead, Florida, as well as Jessica Moreno Caicho, a DACA college student from Richmond, Virginia.
6: What we are going to do is massive non cooperation. We can't get anything. If we are just sitting down doing nothing, expecting people to just make some legislation for us, there's no, right now there's no legislation without criminalization against our communities. And what we want is for all 11 million immigrants, undocumented, to have some form of protection. They need to be safe in their communities. They need to. Need to. The police need to stop harassing them. They need to stop being detained, separated from their families, from their friends. So it's time that you are watching the ones that are here to take actions, to speak up, to take people out of the shadows. Uh, and this is just the beginning. The future, massive strikes, massive boycotts, non cooperation with the system, the country, to make sure that the
1: country feels our power, the immigrant power. What do you think about your immediate response will be from the community?
6: I think that the community
7: is going to have a lot of mixed emotions, a lot of it is going to be of anger and disappointment. But a lot of us expected this to happen. You know, we've been anxious ever since Trump was elected into office. We know that this was in his agenda. So right now, it's about building our emotions into taking action and not hiding hiding before DACA, which wasn't much protection to begin with.
1: Yeah, we already have heard some scattered news about, you know, documented folks already getting deported or being slated for deportation. So... When you think about where to go from here, I mean, you guys are committing mass civil disobedience today, but how do you deal with that risk? It's
7: going to be different throughout different communities. I can't speak for all the communities, but I can definitely say that I will work with my community to keep make sure that there are no more deportations, that, that, we, uh, that we take ICE out of our cities. Mm-hmm. And what's your community here in New York? Um, I'm actually not from New York City. I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and uh, right now our uh, main focus is going to be no more deportations, uh, no more ICE, uh, no more ICE arrest, no more police, uh, you know, I, quote unquote ICE arrest.
1: So, what's the landscape like in Richmond? Do you guys feel safe day to day? Do you feel like you guys are under siege now? What's the what's the response of the local authorities? Local
7: authorities. I mean, we know what we need to be doing. We have we have a plan, and we're going to keep fighting. Do you
1: have allies in the government that are local,
7: local council, or anything like that? We we are going to keep lobbying and uh, you know sharing our stories in order to keep you know keep putting a, a human face yeah. into this rather than how much we bring into this country. Up until this point, it was thought that the, the
1: so-called dreamers, right, were the most sympathetic face of the immigrant rights mm. movement. You guys are kinda of held up as kinda of like the you know the the, the model immigrants and, and do you feel like you can at this point now that you guys are coming under siege, can you kind of leverage that in terms of putting the human face but also shedding light on the broader issue behind that
7: I mean yeah we're here to we're here to fight for um, protection permanent protection unity and uh, dignity and respect for all all 11 million undocumented immigrants like Daca was not a pathway to citizenship at all it still left you pretty undocumented it just gave you a work permit yeah. it was just a band-aid to the bigger issue so even though like a lot of us are dreamers a lot of us are also you know trying to sustain our families and uh, I mean, we, we just have to keep united and not putting that academic uh, wall between us. Like I said, the fight is always going to be fighting for all 11 million undocumented immigrants, um, whether you know, they're, they have DACA and they've been detained or they have DACA and it's being taken away right now, this very second, um, or whether they just came in, they're just coming in to right now, this very moment, and they don't have any papers, we are here to fight for them.
1: That was Jennifer Moreno-Caicho of Richmond, Virginia, talking about defending DACA.
2: I went to Kingston, New York, for a DACA protest outside of new Republican Congressman John Faso's office and spoke with a young DACA recipient there. Let me see. Can I get you to introduce yourself however you want? Okay.
8: Hi, my name is Alan.
2: And you're with... Nobody Leaves Mid-Hudson? Yes,
8: no. I'm nine, nine with...
2: So we're, at the re- we're outside of John Faso's ha- uh, office. Start off, tell us your story.
8: I came to this country very young, over two decades ago. My family brought us here. Um you could, I started kindergarten all the way to high school. Everything was working fine. I didn't worry about my status or nothing like that. I was young. It wasn't until I was 16 I wanted to get a license just like everybody else. Then that's when everything hit me. I, I didn't have no, no papers work to, to show. Then it, then I let the slide. I was like, okay. Um, I could still live without that. Then when I was trying to go to college, my counselor was telling me, do FAFSA, do this, you have good grades, don't worry about it, you're in there. But then when I found out that FAFSA, you need Social Security, you need a legal primary residence. I still did it. I worked, I went to college. A couple years, it was kind of hard. College and that, it kind of got expensive. Um, It was a good thing that New York... I had a in-state tuition. That's a great thing. But I, I needed to bring my parents' taxes, passport, all these type of IDs just to prove that. And it was very hard for me. And it was also very embarrassing for me when everybody else showed their license and I had to show a passport. Everybody find out that I was undocumented. Um, I, my major's engineering. I'm still continuing. I'm still going back to school for that. Um, and it's a, it's a struggle. My job, um, I'm a technician, industrial technician, which is a very good job. I'm afraid of losing that. Every day that I go there to my job, I'm, I'm happy now. I'm content. But like you, like you know, talk is going to end pretty soon. This is something that, that what if when it ends, my job is going to ask me for my papers, and then I can't show them anything. I lose a pretty good Salary, pretty good base salary. I, I could lose, um, and then go back to hiding. I don't want to do that no more. I feel like the country needs to unite and do a legislation a bipartisan. There's a lot of things going on. I feel one of the one of the things is racism. I think that's I can't see it anywhere Anywhere else. I took economics for that reason to understand the economy of this country, and the numbers are there that immigrants will rise. the... Um, The economy up it will the numbers are there they keep saying American first American first I just don't get that because there there are jobs they just Americans are not going for them that's where the visas are to come immigrants come and fill those spots like they just do not understand that like the jobs are there instead of saying American first they need to they really want that they need trade schools they need something else to help the American economy jobs are there And I just feel like they keep saying that. It's just racism towards us, towards the We are the minority now, but we are going to become the majority eventually. They're afraid of that. Um, Like I said before, my my parents are not criminals. They're not.
2: Um, You mentioned, and I think it's a really important point, how much money DACA recipients like yourself are paying just to have DACA. Can you tell people for people who don't know how it actually works tell them what you had to do in order to get this protection that now Trump wants to take away
8: the fee is around465 dollars that includes biometrics and that comes a work permit mm-hmm. we have to pay we pay basically for everything there's no wait there's no free waivers there's nothing like that maybe for residents there are to become citizens there are waivers mm-hmm. but for DACA there's nothing. So there's eight hundred thousand DACA recipients, and that's just law balling. Mm-hmm. If you do the math, eight hundred thousand times four sixty five comes out to be four hundred million dollars. That's a lot of money to into the economy. That's not counting when you go purchase a car. That's not counting when you go to uh, get a driver license, registering a car, that's paying taxes, and um, we we did that we had to ask people for money because we didn't have money, $465. It's, it's a lot of money, especially for a low-income family household. Um, what else can I was gonna say? It's very, they have to really understand our struggle in order for them to, to probably do something about it because everybody says, oh, just apply for citizenship, just apply for this. But there's no path for that. They don't know how hard it is. I, they keep telling me, just, just apply, just be a legal resident. They don't know how hard it is that. Especially now that the fees are going up in, in immigration. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know anything recently, but the fees, about that. Yeah. The, er, the fees are going, even to become a citizen, the fees are going up yeah. $300 more. To become a legal resident, is $300 more. So it's, it's uh, they're making money off immigrants, I could say that, and I, that's why I think they want to keep it at that level to to get money from us that's it because if if they did a path to citizenship we pay our dues and that but they lose money in incarceration they will lose money they make money when we go to jail Mm -hmm. they make money at a state level and a federal level they make money and then when you try to come back even after you pay whoever's going to bring you back to this country which is ridiculous money four thousand dollars to get to this country now you become a criminal because you cross the border even though you're just trying to do a better life it's a very tough situation we are in now
2: what can the state of New York do if the federal government is going to do this is there something that you want to see the state government do
8: yes take the especially us take the temporary visitor on our license because it says that Mm -hmm. and that shows the cops that we are here basically temporary visitors mm-hmm. if that expires then we can renew our license no more mm-hmm. and that's one thing I would tell the state if Colman was in front of me I would tell him take the temporary visitor mark off because that kind of like make us into a section a non-group mm-hmm. that we could lose our any any um, we drive and pull over we could lose a lot of, a lot of stuff with that and that's something that i want the state to do is that and protect our information even though the federal government has our position just mm-hmm. protect us at your state by not taking away our license yeah. when it expires that's
2: yeah. and what would you say to john faso if he popped his head out of the office or something like that and was here to actually listen to all these people who came here to talk to him
8: listen i would definitely tell him listen read about daca read the benefits 't don 't listen to Fox News. I will tell them that uh, because i've seen this show. I try to comprehend it doesn 't go with the numbers. I would honestly just tell them, listen, listen to us, help us out um, you you live there 's a lot of immigrants in this community a lot in the Hudson Valley help them out it 's not just for economic purposes because economically we, Kingston will grow. But also moral. If I don't know his if he's a Christian or not, but moral wise.
2: Tell us how you got involved with uh, Nobody Leaves mid Hudson.
8: Well, my the um, main organizer, Ignacio. He I know him for quite some time. We done with. I work with Rural Migrant Ministry with um, Farm Workers Advocacy. So I've been in this type of before. But now um, he brought me in. He asked me, "Listen, you're a DACA recipient. I need your your voice for for many, not just for Kingston, but for many. So that's what I'm I'm doing here. Um, it's it's a great organization. It's um, he tells me I'm there for you, but I just also want you to help yourself. I'm am I'm gonna be right there backing up for you. And um, it's a an organization you kind of have to. If people could donate to it, it would be a great cause. Membership is not—it's not, not that much. It's twenty-five dollars. You would greatly benefit from it, from learning, being more diverse.
2: How can people find out more about
8: it? Uh, go to the website minnhudson. Nobody lives Anything
2: else you want people to know?
8: We humans treat us like humans. Treat us like citizens of of this. Not the country, because citizen of the world. That's what I want. We are humans. I'm tired of people saying, "What are you? What are you?" I'm I'm human. That's what I'm at. Treat me like a human.
2: That's what I want. That was Alan from Nobody Leaves Mid Hudson, a DACA recipient and organizer.
0: You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
1: And now it's time for ARG, the part of the episode where we talk about the things we read recently that we wish we had written but not. My pick of the week is tech workers, friends or foes? While well, we've discussed tech workers here before in the context of blue-collar workers in Silicon Valley as they push for unions. This piece, In Jacobin by Siddharth Patel, takes an alternative look at the elite tech workers who are operating as relatively high-paid professionals in these software companies and other fancy web startups and the like in rapidly gentrifying cities. On the one hand, these are the stereotypical techies that we all love to hate. But as working-class stiffs or just you know stiff intellectuals, we sometimes forget that techies aren't just identifying as insular elite petty bourgeoisie, um, though that is the position that corporate America has put them in. Many actually do have to work for a living, and while they are perhaps a privileged sliver of Silicon Valley, relatively speaking, structurally speaking, many are in a way cogs in the machine failing to recognize that they too have labor rights and struggles of their own, is to play into a divide and conquer strategy, Patel argues, that only serves capital in the end. It's not that tech workers aren't elite, at least class-wise, but they also show us how complex and perhaps delusional neoliberal post-industrial capitalism has become in terms of undermining fundamental class consciousness and therefore destroying the labor movement from within. He writes, quote, There is more fluidity between worker and capitalist in tech than in other economic sectors. Most tech workers outside of the West Coast, that is Silicon Valley, Seattle, and Los Angeles, and Wall Street, don't get these large salary plus equity packages. Instead, they enjoy what used to be called a middle-class living. Still, he adds, tech bosses are doing their best to lower wages by colluding to suppress tech worker pay moving software design and development work to countries with lower labor standards like India, and automating aspects of tech work itself. Tech workers' relatively high pay doesn't mean they're not workers, and it doesn't always protect them from the power of the bosses, though it may free them from the necessity of work." So we see class delusion operating on multiple levels here. One is in terms of how techies see themselves, or refuse to see themselves, And the other is in the bitter view that many poor workers justifiably take when they see these people moving in and gentrifying their neighborhoods, upending the cultural landscape, and insulting long-standing local communities. Understandably, the Google bus in San Francisco has become our cultural stand-in for a clueless rich millennial. Fair point, but when you think about how gentrification really works, techies are mere minions of the bosses as foot soldiers in the theft of capital from the public sector and from local communities. It's the lower-level techies that create the facts on the ground for corporate capture of local communities, but those workers do not all share the same real economic stake in exploiting degrading labor conditions uh, and suppressing democracy the way their bosses do. And in fact, they're very often victims. Patel goes on to conclude, quote, the solution to gentrification is encroachment on the property rights of landlords. We have to fight for expanded rent control, vacancy control, taxing empty and second homes, further restrictions, and a moratorium on revictions, public housing, and housing as a social right. Not for tech workers to voluntarily exclude themselves from the rental market. We have to fight for a living wage for all, not for lower wages in tech. He adds... Tech workers may be the most identifiable face of gentrification, seen in your bars, your parks, your cafes, but pinning gentrification on them gets the power dynamic wrong, and has the convenient benefit of shielding landlords, developers, and small business owners from scrutiny, many of whom have nothing to do with tech themselves, they're just taking advantage of the boom." In other words, the only way we're going to break out of Silicon Valley's economic stranglehold collectively is to engage and form a united front with an increasingly proletarianized professional tech class. Whether they can be brought over is an open question, It will take a lot of persuasion, but failing to do the hard work of building a unified movement will only render the working classes of all stripes more impotent, more atomized, less democratic as a movement, and less representative of the real have-nots at every level of society. To organize on the digital frontier, we need to creatively explore points of unity, and we have nothing to lose but our blockchains.
2: This week, my ARG is, well, actually from a couple weeks ago. It's uh, by friend of the podcast, Laura Tannenbaum, and dissent comrade and former belabored live guest, Mark Engler, at the New Republic, and it is called Help Wanted Female. It is the story of the picket line, or one of the picket lines, uh, 50 years ago that ended segregated job listings at the New York Times. For those who wonder what this looked like in practice, segregated job listings, I mean, Engler and Tannenbaum offer a contrast. A male listing read, Help Wanted Male Airline Opportunities. The aviation industry is one of the fastest growing in the world. United Airlines, as usual, is setting the pace. The reason for our leadership is the quality of the people who make up our airline. They are intelligent, competitive, and capable. Starting salaries are among the best in the industry. Meanwhile, a female ad, Help Wanted Female Airline Stewardess Must Be Single. Age 21 to 26, height 5'3 to 5'8, weight 105 to 138 pounds. Good health, good vision, no glasses or contact lenses. Well, I'm out. Racially segregated ads had already been banned by the paper, but only in 1965. And the authors note that under the women's jobs section, there was still a separate section for domestic female jobs that were understood to be for black women. So given all this, the new organization at the time, now, the National Organization for Women, perhaps you've heard of it, picketed the Times. Their fight took months and included secondary targets like the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which had held that the sex-segregated ads were not, in fact, discriminatory. And finally, after a lawsuit, the EEOC did decide with the women, and the newspapers desegregated their ads. Laura and Mark write, Quote, today, help-wanted ads are no longer segregated by sex, and feminists secured real victories in breaking into male-dominated professions. Yet labor in the United States remains gendered. Some of the job classifications identified by the Bureau of Labor Statistics as the fastest growing professions in our country remain female-dominated and low-wage. These include home health aides, whose average earnings in 2016 totaled just $22,600. Such care work is disproportionately performed by women of color and immigrants who are vulnerable to abuse by employers. And because care work is still very much considered women's work, the undervaluing of this labor contributes to the persistent pay gap between men and women. In addressing such disparities, no amount of individual leaning in will substitute for collective action for labor rights. Recent organizing drives have garnered some important wins. In September 2013, advocates won a landmark victory when the Obama administration's Department of Labor issued a ruling that extended minimum wage and overtime protections to home care workers. Unfortunately, these gains could be reversed by the Trump administration. They also note that, as in 1967, a crucial lesson is that laws and regulations are only as good as the social movements that insist on their realization. This of course is a lesson we here at Belabored learned a long time ago, but a reminder never hurts that is all we have time for today. You can find links to everything we've discussed on today's show at descentmagazine.org. You can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a mixed striker or a DACA recipient, teacher or a construction worker recovering from Harvey or in the path of Irma, and please stay safe. Thanks as always to your, for your support and a special thank you to our sustaining members. $5 a month gets you a sweet belabored tote bag. You can find out more information on those excellent tote bags and give us a donation at the Dissent website. We will be back soon with more from the class war. See you then.
0: You've been listening to Dissent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, Visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belaboured.